For the grounding of Virgin Galactic and documenting SpaceX's all-civilian mission, you're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Virgin Galactic's founder, Richard Branson, flew to the edge of space and back in July, riding in his company's space tourism plane, Spaceship Two. The trip grabbed headlines and news coverage worldwide as the billionaire raced to beat another billionaire, Jeff Bezos, to the edge of space and back. Branson was welcomed back to Earth with fanfare, and it signaled the start of what could be a very lucrative market for private space tourism. But recent reporting from The New Yorker uncovered a perilous flight with the founder and prompted the FAA to ground the vehicle as it investigates the so-called mishap. We'll chat with The New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl about that perilous flight and what it reveals about the culture of safety and risk at Virgin Galactic. Then, another group of space tourists are set to take to the skies next week. SpaceX's Inspiration4 crew is slated to launch from Kennedy Space Center next Wednesday. The crew of four civilians have been training since earlier this year for the three-day mission, and photographer John Krauss has been there snapping photos of their journey. We'll talk with Krauss about the crew and the places they've gone as they train to fly to low Earth orbit next week. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. A warning light from the cockpit of Richard Branson's Spaceship Two turned amber, then red, a sign that the ship was heading off course. The pilots continued the flight and safely returned with Branson and the crew, but the mishap is unveiling a culture of risk at the space tourism company. The New Yorker's Nicholas Schmidl has been reporting on Virgin Galactic, and his most recent piece for the publication sheds light on this so-called mishap and the culture of safety and risk at Branson's space venture. He's also the author of Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut, and he joins us now. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. So the FAA has grounded... Virgin Galactic's spacecraft. Um, what do we know about the decision to do this? Why Why did the FAA make this decision? Uh, it's a good question. There, there are a lot of details that we don't know yet, but we'll, what, what we do know is that the July 11th flight that Richard Branson um, was on that, that uh, delivered him to the edge of space and that gave Virgin Galactic a very uh, important um, uh, victory in their sort of uh, their 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 space race with Blue Origin and their competition with Blue Origin for the suborbital tourism market. Uh, we know that the flight did not go as well as it initially appeared, or as the company has has so far um, sort of presented it as having gone. And as a result of that, or one of the one of the reasons that it didn't is that it also um, veered outside of the FAA's designated airspace and. So the FAA in a statement last Wednesday, we, we published a piece of the New Yorker that described that got into the details of the flight. And on Thursday, the FAA issued a statement saying that they were grounding Virgin Galactic until further notice. Um, they actually used the words uh, mishap in their statement. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that that's kind of what, what, what we know at the moment. We don't know... Um, uh, for whether this could be something that 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 the FAA comes back in a week, we don't know if this could be a you know a months long investigation. I I, I can't imagine that it would be that long. I my sense is more that there were um, uh, that that they are going over procedural questions as to sort of how these things need to be reported. Um, you know when this was reported, why this was eventually reported, whether the FAA got wind of it. For, like you know there are a lot of questions there. I mean. It, 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 that that remain unanswered, and, and it's, it is worth pointing out that the FAA, 
also has a presence in the the mission control room. Now, those folks are doing, um, you know, they're monitoring a number of things. It, it, it's it's sort of unclear why they didn't even notice it in real time, but but it appears that they did not. Mm-hmm. And Nick, let's let's talk about some of those things that that you've reported in that piece for the New Yorker last week. Um, it, it reveals that this was quite a, a harrowing launch from from the cockpit, right? I mean, what were some of the issues that that were uncovered? So. The issues were a fewfold, right? They, they, the pilots. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, the pilots they, they they didn't get the nose of the spaceship sufficiently vertical, and and when they in early in the in the burn, early during the the boost fa- portion of the flight, when they didn't get the nose sufficiently vertical later on in the flight, about three quarters of the way in, they they got what is called a, an entry glide cone caution, and an entry glide cone. The entry glide cone is the sort of imaginary it, it's the window in it's it's where virgin galactic sort of needs to be in terms of its orientation vis-a-vis uh, the runway and its altitude etc to make it back to the runway safely and, and that kind of this bears a little bit of explanation which is that you know unlike the the other um uh, leading rocket companies at this point spacex blue origin etc who, who use a vertical takeoff and and in the case of those two companies a vertical landing system uh, Vir- uh, Virgin Galactic uses an air launch system. And so when their mothership tows the spaceship up to altitude of about 45,000 feet and then drops the spaceship and then the spaceship uh, ignites the rocket and flies horizontally for a few seconds before entering this very steep uh, vertical ascent, um, it-, it uses rocket power to get to space, but it uses glide energy to to return to the runway. And and if if you are... Let's give an example. Like if you uh, are skiing, uh, snow skiing, and you um, are off, you, you you sort of veer off of the, uh, you know, you veer off of the path, and suddenly you find yourself, you know, a half a mile from where the lift is at the base. You know, you've got to then pull your way back to the lift, right? And so in this case, if Virgin Galactic, if the spaceship is not sort of in a in the proper corridor, it is not going to make it back to the runway. Uh, with with the the amount of glide energy that it has, and so what happens is that they they got the entry glide cone caution, and that's there that that inside the cockpit is is you know it comes up as a yellow light, a, a, a sort of an auburn yellow light, and that's telling the pilots they need to do something. They need to change the 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 orientation of the vehicle. They need to get the nose up, and um, a few seconds passed. They did not get the nose sufficiently up, and then they got an entry glide a red entry glide cone uh, warning. And at this point, there are about five, seven seconds left in the rocket burn. And they really sort of have two choices by the pilot protocols, one of which is to, to make it very clear uh, for the pilot to make it very clear to the co-pilot and for ever, to be evident to those sort of watching that they are taking significant measures to correct the, the orientation of the ship or is, is to abort the rocket motor. Now, this is, this is the question, right, that... that uh, we don't that we we still don't know. We don't know they they did not abort the rocket motor. We don't know if they didn't abort the rocket motor because they the pilots were convinced that they were doing enough uh to to main to stay within that that entry glide cone corridor or whether there was some you know spoken or unspoken pressure to get the the boss in the back into space to to beat Jeff Bezos. But nonetheless, they they ignored that um that uh or they they did not heed the most 
the abort option. And uh, so, yeah, so, you know, that was that, that those, that those, those, that was the dynamic inside. And, and the concern is that if you, if you don't, that if you fall outside of that entry glide cone, that you are going to potentially have to, you know, have an emergency landing in the dirt. And uh, that's, that's not what you want to do if you have Richard Branson and or any other sort of paying customer sitting in the back of the, of the vehicle. I mean, Virgin Galactic has had a history of issues with its uh, flight testing and, and its rocket. There's been a casualty in, in 2014. Um, in 2011, there was a crash. Uh, but in this piece, you write that, that these recent episodes are, are, are more revealing to the culture at Virgin Galactic. I mean, what happened in that cockpit? Is, is this an isolated incident of Virgin Galactic taking unnecessary risks? Or is this kind of a, a show of the culture as a whole at Virgin Galactic? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it, it bears some mentioning that, you know, I, I spent four years embedded with the company, uh, initially for a, a, a long magazine piece for The New Yorker, and that, then um, the reporting I then used, as well as some additional reporting for, for this book that came out in May, Test Gods. Um, the... So in 2011, you mentioned there was there 2011 there was a, a near accident uh, that in which the test pilot managed to save the ship. But in 2007, there was a uh, there was a rocket uh, there was a, an accident involving the propulsion system on the ground in which three engineers were killed. And then in 2014, there was the uh, there was the the, the mid air breakup in which one test pilot was killed. So I, the time that I spent inside the company never it never it never felt it never felt reckless, right? This is not a company that is, that is, um, this is not a company that I, the company that I witnessed is not a company that is sort of cowboy-like, but there is a palpable tension between the realities of a supersonic flight test program and, and and the, the, uh, accompanying risks and the ambitions of a luxury tour brand that is intent on catering to the rich and famous. And Virgin Galactic very much wants to be the latter, but it is still squarely in the former, right? It is still, it, it, it wants to be an established brand, but it is still very much an experimental flight test program. And so the, so, so you mentioned those two episodes. The ones, what I see is that there was an there was a there was an incident in 2018 in July of 2018 and then there was another in February of 2019 both of which um involved the first the July of 2018 the two pilots went to the edge of space they went to about 180,000 feet not to the edge of space I apologize but they got up to where the atmosphere was thin and they sort of temporarily lost control of the vehicle and there were uh, there, there were uh, disagreements inside of the pilot corps as to how they should or should not have been flying the vehicle. And there was a tension there. And, you know, when, when through my reporting, I found out about this and, and, and sort of pressed the company, they, you know, I eventually, I eventually figured out sort of what happened, but there was a deep reluctance to talk about it. And, and one of the, one of the, you sort of hear this from flight test professionals all the time, which are, which is that only through sort of real sort of candid open discussion do you get to the bottom of these problems and sitting on problems and pretending like problems don't exist is is really kind of the sure way to to you know you, 
when you go back and you look at what leads up to accidents, it is often a reluctance to to squarely sort of look problems in the face. So so you had that episode, right? And then and that was involving this the this crew, uh, the the two pilots who were flying it that day were Dave Mackay and Mike Masucci. Um, both of them extraordinarily talented pilots, but you know just just the facts. Those two were flying in in July of eighteen, and then in February of nineteen, this was their second space flight, and this one went up, and there was an oversight on the maintenance uh, side of things. And as the vehicle was going up, the air, the essentially the uh, they, they, they someone someone in the maintenance crew didn't know that they papered over, they covered a vent hole. And therefore, the the flight surface couldn't sufficiently vent, and it popped the seal. And so this is February of 19, right? The ship comes down. There's, again, thumbs up, you know, high fives everywhere, you know, big, big day. They they got there first. They, they put a, um, a Beth Moses, uh, who was an engineer. She went to space. It was her first of, of uh, this is now, she's made, made two trips. Um, but come to find out, you know, there had been this disbond, and the, they did not fly again for, for two years. And... When I reported on this and found out about this and found out that their vice president of safety had, had, had resigned his safety position as a, as a result of his disagreements with how the company was treating the episode, yeah, it painted a really disturbing safety culture and, and, and a, a disturbing portrait of a, a, a disturbing, a portrait of a very disturbing safety culture. And so, um, so I think you, you sort of you, – you watch – you see those episodes leading up to the July um, – uh, this, this flight that was back in July with Branson. And it, it begs the question of who inside the company is, is now left that is ready to speak truth to power, is ready to sort of you know hold others accountable for, for mistakes and, and, and is ready to embrace the fact that, like I said, and this is, this is really the takeaway, that they are a flight test organization still. And that, um, you know, the, the absence of an open and, and, you know, kind of revealing post-flight discussion as to what went right and what went wrong is, um, you know, is, is something that, that causes both insiders and outsiders who know the company uh, some consternation at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and these things are coming to light through your reporting, through, through the FAA action last week. I mean, is there a concern that... People will not want to fly on this. That that this will not allow Virgin Galactic to be that luxury operator. I mean, is there a legitimate concern that they could lose customers over this? Um, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think that I'm the right person. I mean, I think that's a that's a great question for one of the customers and or for the company. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. I think th- those are those are questions that need to be asked. I, I don't know that anyone has has provided a sort of a compelling answer. Um, you know, they, they did lose some customers after the 2014 accident. Um, the company made it a, a, made a sort of a concerted effort to retain the existing customers. I think at one point they had a slightly over 700 reservations and, and they have about 600 reservations at, you know, that's, that's the number that, that, uh, that's the number you hear most often is that they have just over 600. So, um, but they've recently, you know, announced they were going to start taking reservations again at $450,000 a seat up from the $250,000 that they were charging previously. Um, you know, I think the company is, is they are, they are, they are preparing, uh, to go down for eight months of work, um, uh, starting in October, but they are, have also announced that they are planning 
one more flight uh, with three members of the Italian Air Force before they go down for eight months of work, which if you're going to go down for eight months of work, uh, it seems like it would be somewhat urgent. And, you know, trying to squeeze in that last flight with the Italians, um, they're, they're, you know, I think that there are, I would love to sort of know how one goes about prioritizing that Italian flight over the eight months of, 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 you know, perceived, uh, uh, urgent repair or work, attention, maintenance that, uh, they're preparing to do. So, Again, I mean, they their ambitions of of flying regular commercial um, service to the edge of space is is a noble one. And look, I spent I've spent now seven years kind of reporting about this company because I think that what they're doing is inherently fascinating and and um, and is and is and is ambitious and is inspiring and in all of that. Um, and it you know in some ways reporting on the company kind of changed me. Uh, I spent so much time out there with people who were thinking about things much bigger than themselves. And I think that, it, and, and what always interested me most though, was was how they were working through this flight test component of the program. And now that you see the folks who are more on the business side, having an influence in flight test decisions, that I think is where, you, that's, that's where the hairs in the back of your neck start to stand up because you wonder to what extent they are having influence uh, sort of coming in from the business and commercial side on on those realities of those supersonic risks of flight test. Mm-hmm. Nagler Schmidl is a writer for The New Yorker. His most recent book is Test Gods, Virgin Galactic and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Still to come, documenting the next big story in space tourism. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute here on WMFE, America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A group of private astronauts are set to take to the skies next week. SpaceX's Inspiration4 crew is slated to launch from Kennedy Space Center next Wednesday. The crew of four civilians have been training since earlier this year for the three-day mission, and photographer John Krauss has been there snapping photos of their journey. Krauss joins us now to talk about his work documenting this mission. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, John, you've had the opportunity to train or or to follow along with the training of these Inspiration4 astronauts, and I thought maybe we could start um, by you introducing us to them. Uh, Who are these people? What have you learned about them? Absolutely. So there's Jared Isaacman. He's the commander and benefactor of the whole mission. He's the visionary that that put it together and is enabling it for the other three. Then we have Haley Arsenault, who is a physician's assistant at St. Jude, and she's a childhood cancer survivor. And it was her mission after she she beat cancer to end up working at St. Jude, where she is now. And they came to her and said, hey, we have a really cool opportunity for you. Would you like to fly to space? And she said yes. Then we have Dr. Cyan Proctor, who won an entrepreneurial competition to join the, join the mission. She's an artist, a geoscience professor, um, an overall amazing human. And then we have Chris Sombrowski. He's an aerospace engineer. And he won the, the raffle portion of the contest, and he is serving as the mission specialist on Inspiration4. Uh, this crew, along with you, who's documenting their training, have gone to all sorts of different places, uh, Mount Rainier, um, inside fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. some of the places you've been with this crew and, and what it's been like. You know, it, it, it's cliche, but it's really been, been just crazy. Um, I talk about this a lot lately, but I never thought 
that my involvement with Inspiration Four would would be anything beyond like, you know, show up, take a couple pictures. Great to see you guys. I'll see you in three weeks. But I really just joined the team right away and started traveling with them to all these cool places. Like you mentioned, we've we've gone to Mount Rainier where they they climbed to Camp Mir and a couple other members of the team actually did summit the mountain. Um, they've they've spent a lot of time at SpaceX's headquarters in Hawthorne. They've done fighter jet training in Bozeman. They did a zero G flight out of out of Vegas. Um, just so much cool stuff that you know I've really gotten to be a part of beyond simply documenting it. I've I've become friends with these people like I never would have imagined going into this job, and it it means a lot to me that you know they they've trusted me with this access and they they trust me to help share their story in a flattering way. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned this job, but to me looking in and and following you along twitter this does not seem like a job for you (laughs) absolutely um it's um it's it's an experience and opportunity that transcends work you know like like i just said they they have become some of my best friends in the past six or seven months we we've developed relationships that i'm sure we're we're all going to maintain for life you know i'm sure there'll be a inspiration for one year reunion after they launch or something like that i'm sure i'll be there um so, so it definitely goes beyond a job. It, it's really personal to me, and it's something I, you know, I, I cherish very deeply. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about your experience in photography, John. Um, you know, folks who live here in Central Florida along the Space Coast, I'm sure have heard of you or have seen your work. Um, and I remember meeting you early in my career uh, when you weren't even old enough to be on NASA property. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because it, it really wasn't too long ago. But at the same time, it feels like a while ago with, with how many launches I've covered and all the stuff I've been up to. So how did it start? Tell, tell me how it starts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for anyone who hasn't seen my work or is familiar, not familiar with my story, um, when I was 15, I was a freshman in high school and I you know, didn't really know where I wanted to take my life, both personally or professionally. And not even with that in mind, I just randomly bought a camera. I, you know, trying different hobbies and um, just kind of stumbled upon the idea of buying a camera and starting to take pictures. And I really didn't even have the idea of taking pictures of rockets. Um, I don't like to admit this, but I do now. But like space was kind of just something that was always in the background of my childhood. There's a great uh, photo of me at age six on a boat with a shuttle launch. And I'm not even looking at the shuttle launch. A lot of people call me for that, but I actually really like it. I think it's, I think it's funny. So I, I thought space was cool, but I didn't really have the context or the medium to get involved until I bought that first camera. And a month after that, there was a SpaceX Falcon 9 launch and I got to the beach as the rocket was launching. That's like how kind of little I cared about the, the prep that goes into covering these launches. And I, I think that specific launch, I actually needed driven by my mom who was leaving work. Um, Cause I was 15, I couldn't drive yet on my own. So, you know, long story short, it, it turned from this kind of like very fleeting interest and passive hobby um, into me looking ahead at what launches there were in the next month, in the next two months that I would start planning my shoots. And I just began this journey of photography that has led to me graduating high school, not pursuing a college education, and and really diving straight into photography professionally. Um, I think I'm at 130 something launches photographed in in only about six and a half years, which really speaks to the the surgence of the the commercial space industry. You know, 
before players like SpaceX jumped in, we we weren't seeing launches at the cadence we're seeing now. So so that in a sense has really enabled me to do this because it would it would be very hard to, you know, make a living doing this if there were like four launches a year or something. But I think last year we had something like thirty, give or take a couple, which which was great. And I mean, you've primarily launched, you know, f- photographed launches or spaceflight hardware for for different commercial companies. Um, I've got to imagine that the human element of of this assignment, documenting inspiration for, has, has got to be a bit of a a challenge for you. I mean, how has it been capturing the human side of space exploration? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak to it both on a technical level and then like a personal level. So technically. Um, photographing humans and stuff like portraits and artificial lighting is, is really kind of the last big chunk of the art of photography that I've, you know, dived into. I've done landscapes, astrophotography, you know, the rockets, which is kind of like a blend of, of sports and landscapes with like the motion and whatnot. Um, but I haven't really photographed a lot of people beyond doing, you know, a couple of portrait sessions here and there for, for friends or family. So when I got tasked with this opportunity, I wasn't going to say no, of course, but I was a bit concerned, like, how am I going to spend the next six or eight months getting like good images of people? Because again, remember, they're not launching till like the end. So it, it was just a challenge. And it was it was one that I kind of dived into head first. And um, going in, I was I was confident enough in my general capacity of using cameras that I knew I would get you know, technically competent images, but I was definitely worried about, you know, like how I would portray them. You know, a rocket doesn't blink. Usually I'm not photographing four rockets at a time where, you know, one of them has their eyes closed or their mouth's in a slightly weird position when they're talking. So it, it's presented new challenges, but but also on a personal level, and I, and I said this the other day, like I've never become friends with a satellite that's launching to space, but I've become friends with these four people again, in, in a way that I didn't expect going in. Um, so it's definitely personal for me to see them strap into the top of that rocket and go to orbit for three days. Now, with that said, I have the utmost confidence that, that SpaceX is going to execute and they're going to launch and return safely. But but as we both know, like there is inherent risk to human spaceflight. And this is the first time that that I've become friends with what is being risked. So... I think it's going to be a long three days for me on the ground. <clears throat> on the ground, um, I'm sure for them it'll fly by, but it's definitely going to, I think, drag on for me. Mm-hmm. Have you had those conversations with them about about risk and 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 you know your concerns uh, that you have? Um, not too much, I don't think. I think um, those kind of conversations are best best had with their immediate families and, of course, the the trained professionals at SpaceX who are are preparing them. But I'm sure they know. It, it, it's personal for me, you know, we, we've developed a great bond and um, spent a lot of time together. So I'm, I'm sure they know I, I care a lot um, about their safety. That was inspiration for photographer John Krause. More of that conversation, including how Krause is training the crew to take their own photos from space, is coming your way next week here on Are We There Yet? Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you don't miss that conversation or any other episodes. You can do that by subscribing on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting wmfe.org slash are we there yet. 
Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Bersino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>